from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Ty Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Drought plagues the northern plains and west. But unfortunately, we had to sacrifice this field. California producers sacrifice crops, and USDA makes a surprising cut to the wheat crop this year. Weather's impact on pests. Weather is always very influential on pest pressure. A lot of pests, as far as even their emerging uh, time, is heat unit based. It's the unspoken truth about pests. Meet the grandfather of harvesting data in agriculture. We've got 25 years of data on this farm here where I live. And in John's world. What can lumber teach soybeans? Now for the news, traders initially liking what they saw in the latest supply and demand report released this week from USDA. And the major question after the report, where's the wheat? There were a couple surprises in that report this week. The agency reporting there is still more than 1 billion bushels of corn in the bin. That's 25 million lower than last month. But calling for 1.4 billion bushels of new crop, USDA says the outlook is for larger supplies, greater feed and residual use, along with increased exports. Now, as for soybeans, 135 million bushels is the current supply forecast, unchanged from last month, with another 155 million still to come, also the same from June. Yield forecasts were unchanged for both crops, but wheat is where we did see a big drop, with yields now expected to be 45.8 bushels per acre, down almost five bushels from last month. USDA saying the production forecast for Durham and other spring wheat show a significant drop this year due to those drought conditions in the northern plains. Durham wheat production, that's estimated to be down a whopping 46%. So that puts old crop stocks at 844 million bushels. And new crop projected to need stocks are cut 105 million bushels to 655 million. That's the lowest since 2013. And you have to look at the pasture and range conditions in the latest crop progress report to understand what's going on out west when it comes to the drought. Take a look at Arizona, where 78% of conditions are rated poor to very poor. 85% is poor to very poor in Washington state. Montana sits at 80% in that category. Oregon, 71% of the pasture and range is in poor to very poor conditions. That's the same as North Dakota. All areas really right now being impacted by that drought. Well, for some farmers, the drought means having to sacrifice crops. Western growers releasing a series of videos called No Water Equals No Crops. The videos featuring three California growers talking about the losses they are suffering this year. One of those growers, Joe Del Bosque of Del Bosque Farms in Fireball, California. He was forced to sacrifice his asparagus field that still had five years of productivity left. But unfortunately, we had to sacrifice this field. So we cut the roots and we're letting it die. We're taking any water that would have gone to this field to our melons because we have to cut back someplace. Unfortunately, asparagus is one of those places. 70 people are going to lose their jobs here. Next year, there will be no harvest here. Those 70 people lose about two months of work. Western Growers President and CEO saying in a news release that the future of agriculture in California is being compromised by the regulatory uncertainty of water deliveries to farms. It's not just the lack of water, wildfire concerns also growing. The heat and dry conditions are creating problems when it comes to fighting wildfires in the West. Right now, 
67 large fires are burning across the U.S., scorching nearly 918,000 acres in 12 states. Taking priority, the Snake River Complex wildfire near Spokane, Washington. It actually comprises of three wildfires. California has already seen more than three times as much land burned this year than the same period last year. The Beckworth Complex fire is the largest burning in the state. Firefighters describing the fire situation as the most extreme. I'm more worried about this wind. That fire can be on the other side of that mountain and it could put embers down in the middle of this town and burn this town to the ground. Now this is a time-lapse video of another wildfire, this one along the Oregon and California border. The bootleg wildfire has already scorched more than 200,000 acres. And for those experiencing devastating drought, there is help available for producers in parts of the nation dealing with those issues. USDA putting in place emergency procedures that authorizes insurance companies to speed up the claims process, such as streamlining paperwork and taking in consideration regarding the producer. We've provided some guidance on the 72-hour notice requirement, but we are directing the companies to consider individual circumstances where a producer may not be able to do that. Producers will still need to report crop losses due to drought as soon as possible, which could help expedite indemnity payments. For more information, you can check out the Risk Management Agency's Crop Insurance and Drought Damaged Crop webpage. Also announced this week, help is on the way for several livestock producers who faced the unthinkable during the pandemic, having to cull their animals due to a lack of processing capacity. USDA announcing the Pandemic Livestock Indemnity Program, or PLIP, the agency announcing livestock and poultry producers who were forced to depopulate their herds between March 1st of 2020 through December 26th of that year are eligible for this program. Payments will be based on 80% of their fair market value plus the cost of depopulation and disposal. Eligible livestock include swine, chicken, and turkeys. There are additional payment stipulations and rules, but applications can be turned into FSA starting Tuesday. That's it for the news. Well, drought and extreme heat taking a toll on crops and more historic heat is on deck. We'll tell you where in your forecast next. Meteorologist Mike Kaufman joins us now with weather. Mike, not much of a break from the heat. Some extreme temperatures forecasted for next week as well. So how hot are we talking? Well, good morning to you, Tyne. Uh, yeah, absolutely. We're going to see some temperatures probably approaching or uh, hitting records once again, parts of the Rockies into the far northern plains. And unfortunately, you get a hot weather pattern like that and drought areas. That's the combination that gets you really hot. It's very easy for the sun and the atmosphere to heat up dry air than it is wet air because wet air, you have to heat up all the moisture as well and uh, that takes a lot more energy. So uh, it's very easy to get hot in these areas and that's the way it's looking. You can see the drought is more splotchy across the northern plains, but there's still widespread dry conditions. Uh, just some of you have gotten lucky in those areas and not quite as dry as others. Uh, you can see basically from the Four Corner region westward, it is still extremely dry. That has improved over the past couple of months farther east, and you can see very little drought at all east of the Mississippi. There's still a few spots there, southern Wisconsin, northern Illinois, although you folks had some rain uh, in the past few days, and so you may see that even go away as we head toward next week. So here's the jet stream. Here's the heat building back into the northern plains again, and you can kind of see that building there, but watch how the trough kind of holds in the east. There's the Great Lakes in the northeast 
keeping that heat at bay at this point, this little upper air uh, disturbance will add some moisture still to parts of uh, the southern plains as I show you coming up. Now watch what happens later this week. Uh, yeah, some more energy digging down into the Great Lakes in the northeast, actually starting to cool things down there. The heat uh, remains over the plain states, not quite as hot over the northwest, but then even that gets cut down a little bit according to the model, and we start to shove the heat a little bit farther to the south. Taking a look at things, and on Monday, we're looking at a, a cool front through the southeast, area of low pressure in the northeast, and also the south-central plains, areas of showers and thunderstorms in these areas. I would call that mild, uh, really nice weather for much of the Great Lakes there. Hot, though, northern plains back into the west. Taking a look at Wednesday, uh, several little cool fronts kind of coming southward. A little bit of moisture along each one, no major amounts of rain there. But here's that area of low pressure sitting over eastern Texas. So areas of showers and thunderstorms there, spotty over into Florida, and then hit and miss afternoon variety back into the southern Rockies. That continues as we head through the rest of the week. That's typical this time of the year. Few hit and miss southern Mississippi Valley, Gulf Coast area, and then a little bit more rain in the northeast, eastern Great Lakes with that next system moving through. So here's my 30-day outlook for temperatures. I'm going above normal, mid-Atlantic, northeast, all of the northern states and most of the western states. Below normal, though, in those wet areas, southern plain states toward the Gulf Coast, precipitation the next 30 days, southern plains to the northeast, above normal, below normal, northern Rockies and the northern plains. Time. Thanks, Mike. Well, USDA slashed its wheat forecast this year. The reason? Drought. So could that be a sign for what's to come in other crops? John Payne and Kevin Dooling, they join me next. Welcome back this weekend for our marketing roundtables. John Payne, Kevin Dooling. Well, we talked about it in news. USDA had a few shockers in the latest WASDE report. Kevin, we saw a significant cut to the all wheat crop, most of that coming from that spring wheat Durham crop. Do you think more cuts are possible in the future just based on crop conditions out west? I do. From what I talked to, or for who I talked to back there, um, we're looking at, you know, USDA put in their report a 3% abandonment on spring wheat. And man, I, I can't help but think that's going to be 25%. Um, and then the yields are getting on the stuff they don't abandon or are not good. I mean, it's, uh, and then, and then that moves up into Canada. So you've got Canada's production too high. You've got the U S too high. So you've got, um, yeah, more cuts are coming. It's going to be really interesting to see what, um, how this goes, but it's, it's not a fun, not a fun year for the North Plains or yeah, the definitely. And, and John, so. you know, we knew that there were drought issues, heat issues, and that heat coming back next week. We knew some of those issues in the wheat crop. Why do you think it caught the trade a little bit by surprise? And, and we didn't know the extent of that possible damage. Well, I think the, the, the report kind of set the bar for a certain degree on the, uh, on the winter wheat as well. And I think that, you know, we saw an increase year over year in winter wheat by, you know, 100 million bushels, and on the on the on the uh, the KC side, even more than that, and that was offset by losses from the spring wheat. So we have a bumper crop or close to it on the on the KC and the Chicago side, and on the Minneapolis, we're losing it all. So I think the market now looks at uh, you know the potential for future acres. You look at 650 to July 22 KC, and you kind of wonder who's going to be out there pushing 
increased acres and can't see wheat at 650 when you've got beans at 14 and and corn in the you know the the fives the sixes so right i think it was a takeaway from the market i had you know kevin next week now i know you're in the pacific northwest you have had some relentless heat the forecasts are for that extreme heat several above 100 degree days in some areas uh, out in the Pacific Northwest and the West next week. So for the like the later planted spring wheat crop and some of that plant that's already struggling, what is that heat going to do to production next week? Oh boy, you know, it's, you know, the wheat game's pretty well over. You know, I don't see much, you could rain from the next two, three weeks and it wouldn't help the wheat crop much. So to me, the wheat crop, the, you know, that bed is made. You know, the, the guys harvesting spring wheat in the Northwest, I got a guy that was getting 10 bushels an acre, another guy's getting 12. And, you know, the North Plains are gonna follow that same same line. And so it's really, really gonna be frustrating. So the heat now is, is gonna be a corn, more of a corn and bean thing. And so I think, you know, like we've got, like say the two corn crops as John was talking about earlier and, you know, that Western corn crop, Northwest belt, it's gonna struggle in this, I think. Yeah, John, what are those two corn crops? You know, this week we saw some areas needing rain like Eastern Iowa, they actually got some rain. South Dakota seeing some rain. And so as you have some of that rain hit yet in the Western corn belt, you have the Eastern corn belt that has been getting rain. What are the stories right now in this corn crop? We saw a sharp reduction to Illinois uh, ratings last week. You know, it's tough to, for me to get too bearish on on moisture uh, as far as yield goes. Um, but I think we kind of look at a trend yield in, in the eastern part of the Corn Belt, whether it be Ohio, Indiana, uh, Michigan, um, Illinois, I think has done well. Uh, eastern Iowa, you know, guys on the, that I talked to are sitting on monster monster production. But um, I think the big thing about the, the, the acreage report going back to the end of June was that the increase in acres that we saw came from the areas that are in drought right now. So North Dakota, uh, South Dakota, Western, Mon Western Minnesota, those are the areas that are seeing switchovers from spring wheat to beans or corn. Uh, and and they're, they're, str they're struggling mightily. So I, I, I look at where we are on the, the trend line fits here. And I think we're above where we'll be on beans and in corn. You know, I don't know if the East Coast can, Eastern part of the belt can carry what we're gonna lose in, in, in North Dakota and South Dakota. Well, John, you kind of mentioned it, but last weekend on the show, we also talked about, is there still a story in soybeans? And so I want to get your take on that later on U.S. Farm Report. We still have a lot to cover. Kevin and John will both rejoin us later on the show. Well, at one point this year, lumber prices were up 375% in a year. And while those prices have softened a bit, the phenomenon may not be over. Here's John Phipps. Grain prices have been mildly entertaining for our viewers this summer, but I'd have to give the showstopper award to lumber prices. Here's the chart. Now, commodity lumber prices were exciting enough, but at the retail level, it wasn't much better. I buy, perhaps, a little too much lumber, but then I need it for making sawdust and burn pile kindling. So I couldn't help noticing some modest increases. Here are some of the changes I pulled from my receipts from last year. A 10-foot tube of 12 treated cost 26 bucks in June of 20. Today it's $38, up 46%. 716-OSB, which was $19 in August of 20, is now $40, up 111%. But here you go. 
Four by eight by three quarter ACX plywood was $37 in March of 20. Today, it is $97, up 162%. My point is not to whine about the increases or suggest gouging, but to lay the groundwork for what I think will be the aftermath. I will undoubtedly be buying more of this stuff, and despite plummeting lumber futures, I wonder how fast retail will climb down from those prices. Economists call such prices sticky prices for obvious reasons and have pointed to a number of causes. The time delay between wholesale and retail costs, the unfortunate tendency of consumers like me to acclimate to higher prices, and let's face it, the opportunity to reap some significant profits at the retail level. Now many farmers put in 21 crops with 20 priced inputs and even luckier or wiser ones held on to their 20 inventory. So as much as we complain about price increases, this year could see record margins at the farm level. But unlike the lumber industry, commodity price decreases are instantly transmitted to farmers. Not only are input prices rising briskly, land costs, both rental fees and purchase prices, are jumping as well. My guess is those will prove to be sticky prices. And that means one or two serendipitous years of profit are about all we can expect. The sharpness of the lumber spike also suggests supply lines are becoming quicker to respond. Housing starts are dropping as home prices soar. What used to take months or years to adjust now happens in just a few days. I can see the same speedy market reactions at all links in our chain on the commodity price side. Our costs, however, may be another story. Maybe the moral from lumber is you need to be wise, lucky, and quick to survive markets that are flooded with volatile market signals. All right, thank you so much, John. Will Machinery repeat? He has a special tractor tales that happens right after the break. Hey, welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. Something different for you this week. We're going to check out a Uni Tractor Baler rig. Now, this thing may have been slow, but it got the job done. This is a Minneapolis Moline, the uni system that they developed and eventually sold to New Idea. It has a baler unit on it right now, but you can put a combine unit on it or a chopper unit. But this one happens to have the baler unit, which is kind of on the rare side. We had a junker that had died, and, and uh, this particular unit was on his sale, and I tried to buy it then, and it got outbid. So I kept track of where it went, and the guy had it for seven, eight years, and he sandblasted it and restored it, basically, and then he decided to sell it, so I ended up buying it from him about five years ago. The tractor's one unit, and then you put all your different units on it. Very primitive. The only thing, it does have power steering, but everything is belt-driven, so everything runs a little bit on the slow side, and if you got a slippy belt, you know, you don't go too good, and they're a little underpowered, and they need a needed some refinements. Well, the motor on it looks like a V4 Wisconsin, but it actually is a mini V4, but water-cooled. Because uh, it's the same design and everything as the Wisconsin engine, but it's not. You have to drop the bales. They have no hitch. They didn't have enough power to pull the wagon and pull the bales out of the chute. And... But they were pretty ahead of their time. I mean, you could put the two-row corn picker on it and be self-propelled. and. 
Actually, it was kind of a neat deal if they would have kept going and proved it like everything everybody else did, you know. But they're unique, very unique. From grasshoppers plaguing wheat fields to farmers battling a plethora of Japanese beetles. How is weather impacting pest pressure this year? It's the unspoken truth about pests. Next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. The unspoken truth about pests on U.S. Farm Report. Brought to you by AgriSure Traits. Combine the power of AgriSure Duracade plus AgriSure Viptera trait stacks to control 16 yield damaging above and below ground pests. Well, as drought and heat are taking a toll on crop conditions in some areas, some farmers are also battling pests. But what role does weather play each year when it comes to the amount of insects you see in fields? It's the unspoken truth about pests. Drought continues to plague farmers in the northern plains and northwest. We have several fields here that are in tough shape. With a record-setting heat forecast to continue next week. I'm projecting half, half a crop, half normal. Dry weather even producing this. Grasshoppers taking over Montana wheat fields, even showing up on the radar. Once they start flying, now, now they're mobile. And, and when you said something about the radar, that's exactly what happens. They become very mobile in a case like that. A problem Terry Onvik says he hasn't seen since the 1980s. They will reduce it significantly to the point where in some of them there will be no harvest. From grasshoppers to monster Japanese beetles, weather is playing a role in pest pressure this year. Weather is always very influential on pest pressure. A lot of pests, as far as even their emerging uh, time, is heat unit based. Farm Journal agronomists Ken Ferry and Missy Bauer both say it's the lack of rains early having an impact now. For us locally, we did not get heavy rains during the rootworm hatch. So there is a window of opportunity to drown rootworm if the soil is saturated right there at the hatch. We did not get that. So we're seeing a little bit more rootworm pressure from that uh, situation there. In Michigan, Mother Nature made a quick switch. My biggest concern is here we went from being extremely dry, basically we we're on the drought monitor, uh, s starting to show a lot of crop stress, and then we went 13 days of pretty much solid rain, uh, big rains anywhere from 6 to 12 inches. She says that change in weather compounded crop stress. So now we went from being too dry to saturated soils and really losing a lot of nitrogen. So I think it's the added stress that's probably going to be our bigger determinant. So let's say now we do end up with some sort of insect pressure, but we've already had all these compounding stresses on top of it. So I'm more concerned about the, just the added stress from it. And Ferry says more so than the issue of too dry or too wet, it's the heat and lack of heat that can often be a problem when it comes to pests. For insects, it's not always the dry or wet situation. We track insects by insect GDUs, so that becomes part of uh, their development, so we know when the actual uh, infestation is going to take place. The other major factor, 
winds. Other things that in the weather that affect insects is those that blow up from the south. So you're going to need southerly winds to bring in, for instance, our cutworm populations and maybe our southwestern corn borer, stuff like that. From wind direction to velocity of the gusts, it comes with increased pest pressure risks. Things like armyworm, black cutworm moths, those are all things that really blow up uh, in from the southern more areas into our area. And then once they get here, then we again goes back to heat unit based on when things actually hatch after the uh, eggs are laid from the moths. But this year, we haven't seen dramatic impacts of the weather on pest populations this year. University of Illinois Extension entomologist Nick Sider says weather hasn't played a major role in the eastern corn belt. Uh, spider mites are a great example of an, a pest that that leads to. When you have very wet weather, particularly when you have that at the wrong time or the right time, I guess, if you're trying to get rid of corn rootworm. From very wet to the issues from flooding. If you have flooding conditions, uh, when those eggs are hatching, you can have a pretty dramatic negative impact on that population and reduce corn rootworm pressure. We haven't had either of those situations this year, but those are prime examples. As farmers and agronomists hit the fields to scout, agronomists and entomologists say there's one major misconception when it comes to weather's impact on insect populations that year. I think probably one of the big misconceptions is uh, the winter. People always say, oh, it was this type of winter or that type of winter, and that's going to influence my pest pressure. There might be a little bit of truth to some of that, but remember, so many of these pests do overwinter in other places, get blown in with the moths and the wind currents. It's a misconception from Michigan to Ohio. The thing that I get asked every time we have a cold winter is, will the cold winter affect the insect populations? Will there be fewer insects? And I'm always very sad to tell people, no, not really. I, I do get this question a lot, but the fact is insects are very well adapted to live in the climates where they occur, even the extremes of those climates. As the University of Illinois Extension entomologists say, it's also a misconception that ripples through fields in Illinois. Most of the insects that we deal with regularly in Illinois, particularly things like corn rootworm, things like Japanese beetle, things like bean leaf beetle, they're pretty well adapted to an Illinois winter. Ferry says farmers also think a change in weather overnight can cause new pest problems to pop up. So two dry days doesn't create, for instance, an aphid or spider mite issue, and two wet days doesn't create uh, a disease issue in the corn. Instead, he says by the time farmers notice heavy infestation issues, it's probably been a problem for weeks. And we have to look at most time we're looking at two to three week weather patterns uh, that set us up. So it's not as uh, as quick as some people want to believe. We'll be covering this topic over the next few weeks, but you can also see more truths about pests on AgWeb. That's go.farmjournal.com slash pests. All right, up next, how is weather impacting the soybean and cotton crops across the U.S.? Our roundtables are next. Welcome back, Kevin Dooling, John Payne. Kevin, we talked a lot about the wheat crop, the cuts that USDA made, that possibly there may be more cuts in the future. But do you think that the cuts they made to this wheat crop, is that a precedent possibly of the possible you know, damage from the heat and the drought that we could see in, in other crops like corn and, and soybeans? I think so. That makes sense. You know, it's 
it's going to be it's going to be regional but you know the biggest takeaway you know on those on those wasda reports you know it's it's always a narrative it's not cut and dry this is what we think the crop is this is what we think demand is and here's your carry out we'd like it to be that way but it's not i mean i think in my opinion they start with the carry out number and then kind of fill in the blank to get to it which they you know they added some things from last year's crop on some of the carry outs that just didn't make sense but and so you know the cuts you're talking about they're going to take a while before you see them in a wasda report but yeah the heat's going to do some damage and and like i say is that corn corn yield is it good is it yeah. hard to say it could, right. it could flip some i think um Okay. Yeah. And, and, and John, you know, you mentioned um, the Eastern Corn Belt and some of those areas, trend line yields that you're expecting possibly in a lot of these areas, because we did get some rain, but when it comes to soybeans, is it a different story when it comes to soybeans? Oh, I think so. I think that, uh, you know, the, the soybeans main growing region, of the soybean belt expand, extend, extend more Northwest than the corn belt. So I think that those additional acres that will get put in are going to be under stress. Kevin mentioned earlier in the show, uh, you know, the heat and the, uh, that we're seeing in, in Montana and, and in the Dakotas that that's going to affect the beans. I think more than the wheat at this point, because if you have moisture, you're probably already shifted out of the wheat game and into the beans. So I think short term here, we, we start to look for Chinese purchases to make the next leg up. Uh, we have a meeting next week. I think the first delegate meeting is next week. Uh, and, China just released GDP numbers this morning, and with it was their trade deficit with the U.S., and it really hasn't narrowed. So the analysts I read really think China's going to – they've got a lot of work to do on the import side. And, I mean, if you're going to import something, they're probably going to import food given their inflation. So we look for bean purchases to pick up here, corn purchases as well. But I think the soybeans will react first, uh, especially to the Chinese actions. Yeah, and in all U.S. commodities, Kevin, how big of a role do you think that the demand story will play, good or bad? It is the story. I mean, last year, look at last year, you know, it, we tried to beat the supply drum all we could, but until until the uh, the demand really started surfacing from China, that's when the markets really took off. And so, as John said, we're looking for China to come in and really start the bean purchases anytime. I think that's going to happen. You know, we saw Brazil today, you know, book some hard red winter. And so the wheat, the wheat game is just starting with the demand. You know, we've got a little ways to go for corn, but yeah, soybean were it's imminent and and that's when these markets are going to come to life. Yeah. John, real quick, let's switch gears to cotton. We had heard some areas of, you know, Texas and some of that area that had some trouble getting cotton in the ground, but we have seen quite a bit of rain in that area. So what is your outlook for the cotton crop now? Well, I was expecting the acreage cut that was going to get added to corn or, or milo. Uh, and that didn't come. So we were left with the acres pretty much close to where the March numbers were. That wasn't bullish. Carryover, 3 million bales, nothing really scary, nor is it nor is it bearish for, for price either. Uh, I think the big issue we watch is Chinese credit. Watch the retail sales data coming out of China. Um, at the report today had a lot of great nuggets in it about China. And one of them was the retail sales data was up 12% year over year. That is, that's a first change. They haven't put in a lot of stimulus yet. And there's some expectations that they might. I think cotton has some legs if, if, uh, if you're looking for a story to chase. Yeah, sounds like that demand story. All right, John, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us this weekend. We appreciate it. We have much more to cover on U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Please stay with us. Technology is... A U.S. Farm Report special report is brought to you by John Deere. Well, as technology has evolved over the past two decades, how farmers use and collect that data 
also has grown, but just not as fast. In fact, a recent Farm Journal survey found while the majority of farmers digest the data on their own of the ones who use a trusted advisor, 65% say that person is an agronomic consultant, while nearly half say their equipment dealer is their go-to. This weekend, we revisit the past to discover the future of harvesting data. Illinois farmer Steve Pitstick. From about the middle of last year through about three weeks ago, we were extremely dry. Knows the weather cards he's dealt change every year. The last 90 days we had like four inches of rain and then it started raining and we had seven inches over about a two week period. So now we're pretty good, pretty good shape. With continued rain needed throughout the season, he's come to terms with the things he can't control. But I'm much more optimistic than I was a month ago. But what he can control? Just trying to look at everything that we do in the field. Is different. Every time we cross a field, trying to document the herbicide, uh, tillage pass, the planting pass, the yield maps. Digesting his farm's data is nothing new for Pitt Stick, even featured in a 1997 issue of Farm Journal magazine for being an early adopter. We started in 1996 with the John Deere system. Uh, it's one of the first ones around. On the leading edge of data adoption. I've got 25 years of data on this farm here where I live. Data-driven decisions became a theme for Machinery Pete right away. I got my start collecting data in November of 1989. Auction prices, of course, no one was saying big data back then. Greg Peterson, creator of MachineryPete.com, also started collecting valuable data before it was popular. I just knew it would be helpful for people to get a handle on, geez, what's, what's that tractor worth, and wanted to have a database where we could uh, provide the answers. From pen and paper to releasing the data on the internet starting in 2000, he knows the amount of data you can reap is often overwhelming. I think the biggest barrier is just to get numb to the volume of data. The thing is don't tap out because data, good data that's reliable and trustworthy, whether it's about used equipment values or from a section of your field can make you better. Pitstick says from tillage passes to planter metrics to even bouncing the planter across headlands. The more data he digested, the quicker he could fix things he was doing wrong. I think early on we made a lot of uh, things that made 10% differences. In the last five years it's been much more difficult, so we're trying to find those one or two percent gains and they're just not as easy to come by. But not as many farmers are immersed in the data as Pitstick today. Kansas State University's Terry Griffin says data shows while precision agriculture has been around since the early 1990s, the majority of farmers aren't fully utilizing their farm data today. Less than half of farms are using yield monitors mated with a GNSS or a GPS receiver that are able to georeference um, yield monitor data for use later. And given that less than half of farm operations have the technology, we can also assume that many of those who even collect data are not actively using it. And the biggest barrier in getting started? The investment. One of the biggest barriers I see at the farm level is the basic economic question of benefits versus the cost, investment in the sensors and the human capital cost of managing that data. A recent Farm Journal survey found while a quarter of farmers use a trusted advisor to handle their data, 75% do it on their own. I think there's a definite fear with farmers of sharing data, myself included. You know, what I do is proprietary, it's my recipe. But as farmers go from just collecting data to actually using the information to make decisions. I firmly believe that we are still in the infancy of farm data. Griffin says there's value in harvesting data to plan for next year. My research indicates the greatest use within the farm gates of farm data is 
the combination of technologies to implement and collect data, implement on-farm experiments and collect data from those experiments with which the farm operator will make decisions across many more acres the next year. And for farmers fluent in farm data like Pitstick, instead of big picture, he wants to reap detailed data even by the row. I think we can get down to uh, maybe row by row on our on our corn heads and, and looking at uh, you know what machine impacts are, what the planters do, what the tillage passes do, look at a lot more uh, uh, minor data if you will. We got to get the big data right first and then we'll move down to the, the, the smaller stuff that we can actually uh, affect. Row by row, field by field. Griffin says the automation element of harvesting data is essential. We've automated that with machinery. Unfortunately, we have not been as good at automating um, some of the tedious tasks with data. As farmers, extension researchers, and agribusinesses work to unlock the key to make it easier for farmers to tap into the most valuable data on their farm. It's the year 2021, where this is going to be down the road, the decisions we make, the information we're going to use to make them is going to be completely different. A quest to harvest data differently and efficiently, that's been decades in the works and may look differently decades down the road. Now, Steve Pitstick was actually featured in Farm Journal magazine in 1997, the winter after he created his first yield map. To read that archived article, you can go to agweb.com. All right, up next, John Phipps. Making farms more resilient. Well, we showed you one piece about technology earlier, and that's harvesting the data from it. John Phipps has another take in customer support. From Carlton Nelson in Kirkhoven, Minnesota. In my estimation, the American farmer has allowed a very few things to run a very large part of the business. Most meat processing is dominated by a handful of processors. Machinery accessibility and repair is controlled by a very few companies. Making repairs to your own machinery has become so technical that you can't do it. Large international companies control the seed and chemical inputs. Grain marketing is dominated by a very few companies, and the grain is hauled by one railroad. Auto steer and air conditioning may be nice, but not essential. And if an electrical pulse fries all the computers, we have a problem. Well, thanks for writing, Carlton, and for sending your address. Now, maybe it's our age, but the problems you identified are not just nostalgia. Equipment is much more complicated and harder to self-repair. Concentration has limited our choices and closed local competition. Most recently, we discovered that rapid efficiency gains have a hidden cost, frailty. Many of the systems we depended upon for everyday existence have links and choke points that we never knew existed. It's like that odd-sized roll pin that is essential to the operation of a million-dollar combine. The pandemic wreaked enormous damage on our people and economy, but it has spotlighted some of these hidden weak points. One of the biggest failures has been the just-in-time lean supply chains that achieved amazing efficiency while forgetting to ask, what do we do if this piece fails? On the farm, we've tried to use a rule of don't let one breakdown bring everything to a halt. Being able to swap tractors or get by with two trucks instead of three are examples, but such flexibility is expensive and sometimes outright impossible 
We can't keep two combines around, for example. We cannot revert to older technology without enormous productivity losses, more labor, and unavailability of older machines. But we can add resilience to our existing personal and business systems. Being forced to identify all the things that must go right for all of it to go right is one step. Another is recalculating tiny risks we had rounded off to zero, like a pandemic. Next week, I'll talk, talk more fully about one such social adaptation to the pandemic we have made that is reshaping our lives, avoidance. Thanks, John. Well, trouble may be brewing for the beer crop. We'll tell you why next. Well, trouble may be brewing for the beer crop. All the drought and heat that we've been talking about impacting wheat. Well, it's also barley. USDA says the condition of the U.S. barley crop is actually at an all-time low. A recent crop progress report shows nationally just about 20% of the barley crop is in good to excellent shape. Washington State ranks the worst. Well, something to think about as you possibly partake in a barley-based beverage this weekend. Thanks so much for watching. Be sure to join us again next week as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.